Section 8 of Arthur Wing Pinero, Playwright. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Arthur Wing Pinero, Playwright, A Study, by Hamilton Fife. Section 8. Serious Intent, Part 1. When Mr. Pinero wrote The Profligate in 1887, he followed up, after a long interval, the line of advance upon which he had started with The Squire. Whether he chose to deal with a grave problem of life, one of the problems which face every man when he enters the manly state, and which may be offered for the solution of any woman who has become a wife, whether he left the comic and the sentimental high roads of drama for this more strenuous path because he felt impelled thereto by sympathy and interest, or whether he merely judged that the time was ripe for plays of serious intent, I cannot tell. One is inclined to pin one's belief to the former alternative when one recollects that he has given us since the second Mrs. Tanqueray, the notorious Mrs. Ebsmith, and the benefit of the doubt. But we must also remember the princess and the butterfly, and the gay Lord Quex. Trelawney of the Wells he may have written by way of recreation. The princess and the butterfly, even, may have been treated as he treated it of a set purpose, though, as I suggested just now, a deeper interest in the eternal verities of existence would probably have brought the theme nearer home to the mind and the heart of a time. The gay Lord Quex is on a different plan altogether. Here Mr. Pinero took no side, did not even show which way his sympathy tended. He drew a picture, an exaggerated picture in most respects, of society in its most corrupt and unpleasing aspects, and made the best use he could of his materials from the point of view of theatrical effect without offering any moral or appearing to enforce any lesson. What moral there was, the spectator had to draw for himself. How can we explain this change of plan? Had Mr. Pinero changed his outlook in the interval between 1887 and 1899? If not, and it scarcely seems probable, how can we reconcile the two methods of treatment, the one bracing, ennobling, full of a stimulating sincerity, the other frankly cynical, making its appeal by dint of cleverness and not by dignity of purpose. Only by concluding that Mr. Pinero has no particular fondness for either method, and that he adopts the one or the other, as his own fancy and the fashion of the hour may dictate. To this it may be answered that Mr. Pinero is a writer not of one mood, but of many, that it is stupid to expect him always to produce the same kind of play, that, in short, his versatility of method is his greatest merit, and the surest proof of his genius. Well, for those to whom this is so, it is so. It is, I grant with the utmost readiness, a great merit to be versatile. But versatile authors do not, as a rule, leave a deep impression upon their age. Even when a man has the brain and a heart of a Robert Buchanan, he cannot afford to squander his genius in every direction. Furthermore, an ingrained habit of mind must leave its mark upon everything which the mind produces. Over Mr. Meredith's work broods always the spirit of comedy. Over Mr. Hardy's always the tragic muse. Richard Fervell and Beaucamp both come to an end that might be, and generally is, termed tragic. But consider cases closely, and you will find in each a certain freakishness of circumstance which is alien to the tragic manner. In neither case has the end been foreseen as inevitable. In neither case is it the result of conflict with one of the great obstacles to the human will, destiny, providence, a law of nature, or a grand passion. In Mr. Meredith's books, we see a man contending with his fellow men and with the obstacles which their conventions and prejudices set in his path. In Mr. Hardy's novels, on the other hand, the catastrophe is to be apprehended from the first. 
Humanity always appears on the scene hand in hand with trouble, trouble not created by its own actions, but trouble which has its root in the very nature of things. Now if Mr. Pinero had an ingrained habit of mind, a steadfast persistency of vision, they would color all that he wrote. They might tinge it lightly, or they might deeply dye it to a uniform hue. What is certain is that in all his work we should find some evidence of the point of view from which he surveyed existence. Any such evidence I must admit that I have failed to find. It may be my own fault, my own dullness of perception, but I have never found anyone else claim to have found it, and until such a claim is put forward and justified, I do not see that we can come to any conclusion, save that Mr. Pinero has no particular point of view, and that his plays must be judged one by one, each on its own merits, not in bulk, as a body of work expressing a considered and consistent criticism of life. This, it will have been noticed, is the plan I have adopted in discussing the plays. In succession we have had, under the glass, Mr. Pinero's early efforts, his farces, his dramas of sentiment, his satirical comedies, and now we come to his plays of serious intent. It is in these that I personally am mainly interested, and since I believe the majority of my readers will share this predilection, I shall offer no excuse for dealing with them at some length. There is an increasing number of playgoers who agree with Alexandre de Montfi that, while it is good to laugh, it is not good to laugh at everything, and that there are certain subjects which ought to be treated seriously, even in the theatre. En France, nous rions beaucoup des choses sérieuses. C'est même de celles-là, je crois pouvoir l'affirmer, qu'on rit le plus. Moi, c'est un goût particulier. J'aime mieux rire des choses qui ne sont pas sérieuses et qui n'en ont pas moins la prétention de l'être. Ma conscience se trouve ainsi dropeau. Je suis sûr d'avoir plus longtemps des sujets de gaieté et d'avoir finalement raison. Holders of this opinion have had to bear a good deal of ridicule in England, as well as in France, and also a good deal of abuse. For a good many years, Ibsenite was a term of reproach implying, in the person at whom it was hurled, not only lack of taste, but irreligion. To admit a liking for the problem play was to write oneself down in general estimation a raker among unsavory garbage. Any drama that dared to hold the mirror up to nature and to reveal what the polite world, in the matter of Mr. Podsnap, preferred to wave aside, was decried as morbid, unwholesome, unpleasant. Any dramatist who, in pursuit of better things, ventured to take the suffering human race, to read each wound, each weakness clear, to strike its finger on the place, and say, Thou ailest here and here, was convicted not only of tiresomeness, but of immorality, whereas, of course, the only immoral plays are the plays which represent vice both as being attractive and as having no necessary unpleasant consequences, which Vice always has. In a preference to a drama produced at the Comédie Française as far back as 1840, M. Walisky wrote a few sentences on this subject, which sum it up very pithily and briefly. L'immoralité, said M. Walisky, consiste à déguiser la laideur de la corruption et à parer le vice des couleurs les plus séduisantes à trouver des phrases mignardes, des affaîtries de mots et de style pour voiler la misère des civilisations corrompues et des âges pervertis. Mais signaler la profondeur de la plaie, se tenir au bord du précipice et le montrer du doigt afin qu'il soit évité, est-ce là de l'immoralité A thousand times no 
Now in The Profligate, Mr. Pinero set out to do just what the author of the play of 1840 did, to stand on the edge of a precipice, and to warn all passers-by to give it a wide berth. He set out to show, in a word, that the man who leads a desolate life before marriage will pretty certainly have bitter cause to repent it afterwards. It is a good and soothfast saw, half-roasted never will be raw. No dough is dried once more to meal, no coach new-shapen by the wheel. You can't turn curds to milk again, nor now by wishing back to then. And having tasted stolen honey, you can't buy innocence for money. These were the lines Mr. Pinero set upon his playbill. They strike the keynote of the play as he wrote it. Not, however, as it was acted at the Garrick Theatre. Mr. Hare lacked Mr. Pinero's courage. As he afterwards admitted in a public letter, he felt afraid of braving the popular prejudice in favor of a happy ending. He suggested that Mr. Pinero should give the go-by to the stern logic which made Dunstan Renshaw bear the consequences of his profligacy. The counsel of expediency prevailed. The ending was rewritten. A happy ending was contrived, and there was lost more than half the force of the lesson Mr. Pinero set out to teach. The original ending, the ending which Mr. Pinero printed, and to which he presumably adheres, is painful. It presses home with uncompromising force the truth embodied in the lines just quoted. The stage ending was not really happier, but it seems so to the people who regarded only the outside of things. How could Renshaw and his wife ever be happy again, she knowing the life he had lived, and he knowing that she knew? It was not merely that he had lived what is called, with unconscious irony, a man's life. That might have been forgiven, as Hugh Ardale's past is forgiven by Aline. Forgotten, even, as Leslie only knew of it, vaguely, and had no hideous details seared into her brain. One can never tell of what a loving woman's heart may be capable. Renshaw, it is true, is a kind of man for whom it seems at first impossible to feel much sympathy. On the very eve of his marriage to the girl who has, he declared, changed and purified his whole nature, he indulges in a vulgar carouse. On his wedding morning he shows no sign of shame or regret when Murray speaks of the besmirched love he offers Leslie. He jauntily says that he has taken the world as he found it, and prates fatuously about happy marriages being the reward of men who have sown their wild oats. Women, however, have loved such men, even when they have guessed pretty shrewdly at the truth about them, and will go on loving them without a doubt. Dissipation of the ordinary kind has been forgiven, and will be forgiven, so long as men are weak and women steadfast. But Renshaw was not the mere dissipated man about town. He was a betrayer, a seducer, as well as a common courier de femmes, his character is a character of a profligate without any redeeming feature. It is not suggested that the episode of Janet Priest stood alone. No doubt Lawrence Kenward had duped and ruined other poor girls under the cowardly refuge of a false name. But even if it did stand alone, is such an episode ever to be forgiven by a wife who knows all its foul details, and has realized with agonizing exactness what its consequences have been? If Leslie could have pardoned Renshaw, could he ever have been forgiven by her brother Wilford, who has loved Janet and whose life is embittered by Renshaw's crime? No, between Leslie and her husband would have always stood the shadow of Janet Priest. No happiness was possible to them. Renshaw's misery in the last act may incline us to be merciful in our views of his faults. It is difficult to withhold from him a measure of pity, even of sympathy, when the change which his marriage has made in him becomes clear. I married, he tells Murray, in darkness, as it were. She seemed to take me by the hand and to lead me out into the light. Murray, the companionship of this pure woman is a revelation of life to me. 
But, you know, because you read my future, you know what my existence has become. The past has overtaken me. I am in deadly fear. I dread the visit of a stranger or the sight of a strange handwriting, and in my sleep I dream that I am muttering into her ear the truth against myself. Be sure your sin will find you out, had been Murray's warning, and Runshaw can only groan out that he spoke truly. But neither pity, nor the latent tendency in nearly all of us to believe in the efficacy of eleventh-hour repentances, must blind us to the realities of things. For a mean, despicable, unmanly sin like the sin of Dunstan Renshaw, there is no forgiveness. And to make thoughtless people believe that a happy ending is possible to a story such as the story of a profligate, is to palter with truth and to do an ill service to the cause of morality. It is this willingness to palter with truth and conscience which has hindered the drama in England from taking the place it has taken in other countries. For a writer to write against his own judgment what will please the majority of people is fatal to the interests of art. It robs the artist's work of his interest. It robs his calling of its dignity. Imagine a publisher suggesting to Mr. Meredith or Mr. Hardy that they should alter their novels in order to make them more acceptable to the purchasing public. It is difficult to imagine this. It is impossible to imagine Mr. Meredith or Mr. Hardy consenting to such a proposal. How can the theatre, so long as managers and authors treat it in this fashion, expect to be regarded as anything but a form of light entertainment? And if our leading playwright, with his position assured, is so easily persuaded to sacrifice his ideas on the altar of expediency, what courage or consistency can be looked for in authors who are struggling hard to make a living and a name? If the profligate were not a fine play, one would less regret its author's instability of purpose. It is a fine play, in spite of its occasional theatricality. It is now and then a little too well-made to be absolutely convincing. But the theme is handled with remarkable power. The story holds the attention firm, and the pity and pathos of broken lives touch the heart with poignant force. Upon the reader, it produces almost as much effect as upon the spectator in the playhouse. In the later acts, quite as much. This is the test of good drama now, as it was in the days of Aristotle. In the Poetics, we read that the plot of a tragedy ought to be so constituted that, even without the aid of the eye, anyone who has told the incidents will thrill with horror and pity at the turn of events. But to provide this effect by the mere spectacle is a less artistic method, and one dependent upon the extraneous aid of stage management. Those who employ spectacular means to create a sense, not of the terrible, but of the monstrous, are strangers to the purpose of tragedy. The profligate is as truly a tragedy as any of the great dramas of the Greeks which showed men struggling in the grip of fate. Fate is, after all, only the nickname we give to retribution. Retribution for our own follies and blunders, or, it may chance, for the long-past sin or thoughtlessness of others. The Greeks bridged over the dim relation between cause and effect by inventing a stern power, which compelled men hither and thither as it willed, now in justice, now in irony. We see more clearly that they are the victims, not of any agency outside themselves, but of their own acts. Destiny is, in short, nothing but character. Here is the modern basis of tragedy, and upon this basis both the profligate and the second Mrs. Tanqueray are founded. The one, indeed, is a pendant, a corollary to the other. The story of Dunstan Renshaw shows us that the profligate must always, by a minute's mirth to wail the weak, and sell eternity to gain a toy, that a man cannot escape from his past. The story of Paula Tanqueray enforces the same truth as it applies to the woman. Paula, like Dunstan, wanted to leave behind all that had marred her life, to let it be as if it had never been, but she finds the burden of her former self 
dogging her every footstep just as he did. It is not merely that the outward consequences of her acts rise up to cloud her horizon. Her very nature bears the impress of perverted instincts. There's hardly a subject you can broach, Aubrey tells Cayley Drummle, on which poor Paula hasn't some strange, out-of-the-way thought to give utterance to, some curious, warped notion. They are not mere worldly thoughts, unless, good God, they belong to the little hellish world which our blackguardism has created. No, her ideas have too little calculation in them to be called worldly. But it makes it the more dreadful that such thoughts should be ready, spontaneous, that expressing them has become a perfectly natural process, that her words, acts even, have almost lost their proper significance for her, and seem beyond her control. Paula cannot do or be what she would. She wants to be a kindly, trusty comrade to Aubrey, but she can never miss an opportunity of saying an ill-natured word. She longs to make Aline love and confide in her, but she is always on the watch for signs of distrust, and is forever revealing her morbid jealousy of the tie that binds Aline and her father together. She would like to receive Mrs. Cordelion in such a manner as she knows both prudence and politeness dictate. But instead of this, she behaves like a madwoman. She cannot go back to her former friends. She has outgrown them. The vulgarity of Lady Oride and the topping imbecility of Sir George fill her with disgust. The past hangs its loathsome weight about her memory. The present leaves her unsatisfied and ill-content. The future terrifies her with its long vistas of weariness and horror. Read her long last speech to Aubrey, is there any passage in contemporary literature which compresses into more striking words the nemesis that waits for all, man or woman, who live as Politancaret had lived? The sudden appearance of Captain Ardell has shown her in a flash that the past can never be shaken off. Her husband tells her that her nerves are unstrung. That sort of thing isn't likely to recur. The world isn't quite so small as all that. Paula. It isn't. The only great distances it contains are those we carry within ourselves. The distances that separate husbands and wives, for instance. And so it'll be with us. You'll do your best. Oh, I know that. You're a good fellow. But circumstances will be too strong for you in the end, mark my words. Of course I'm pretty now. I'm pretty still. And a pretty woman, whatever else she may be, is always, well, endurable. But even now I notice that the lines of my face are getting deeper. So are the hollows about my eyes. Yes, my face is covered with little shadows that usen't to be there. Oh, I know I'm going off. I hate paint and dye and those messes, but by and by I shall drift the way of the others. I shan't be able to help myself. And then some day, perhaps very suddenly, under a queer fantastic light at night, or in the glare of the morning, that horrid, inevitable truth that physical repulsion forces on men and women will come to you and you'll sicken at me. You'll see me then, at last, with other people's eyes. You'll see me just as your daughter does now, as all wholesome folks see women like me. And I shall have no weapon to fight with. Not one serviceable little bit of prettiness left me to defend myself with. A worn-out creature, broken up, very likely, some time before I ought to be. My hair light, my eyes dull, my body too thin or too stout, my cheeks rattled and rattled, a ghost, a wreck, a caricature, a candle that gutters, call such an end what you like. Oh, Aubrey, what shall I be able to say to you then? And this is the future you talk about. I know it. I know it. This is an awful speech, this of Paula's, a speech that rings in the ears for days. And it is, every word of it, true. Not of Paula's case alone, 
but of every case like hers, and in a modified degree its truth comes home to all who wantonly break the laws which the experience of the world has made for men and women. There may for certain people be a higher morality than the world's, but in their individual equation wantonness can be no factor. Many are offended by plain speaking on these points. We need no such warnings, they say. Why recognize the existence of women of Paulo's class at all? These subjects are not for public discussion, even by the preacher. We should be kept from all knowledge of such things. Yet neither the preacher nor the dramatist do their duty to their age if they see a precipice yawning in the path and fail to warn the passers-by. The social evil with which Mr. Pinero dealt in The Profligate and in the second Mrs. Tancredet is a precipice that has engulfed more lives than can be counted, and it is not by looking away from it that the evil can be cured. Cured, perhaps, it never can be, but to make manifest its hideousness is the best means of lessening the number of its victims, and that is what Mr. Pinero did in these two plays, with the skill of the artist as well as the philosopher's calm insistence upon the lesson he has in mind. Compare with this pitiful prophecy of Paula's the speech in which Renshaw forecast the only life which he and Leslie could live in common. Supposing there is some chance of my regaining her. Regaining her? How dull sleeplessness makes me. How much could I regain of what I've lost? Why, she knows me. Nothing can ever undo that. She knows me. Every day would be a dreary, hideous masquerade. Every night a wakeful, torturing retrospect. If she smiled, I should whisper to myself, Yes, yes, that's a very pretty pretense. But she knows you. The slamming of a door would shout it. The creaking of a stair would murmur it. She knows you. And when she thought herself alone, or while she lay in her sleep, I should be always stealthily spying for that dreadful look upon her face. And I should find it again and again as I see it now. The look which cries out so plainly, Profligate, you taught one good woman to believe in you. But now she knows you. The same note of hopelessness sounds here, the same terrible certainty that, as men and women shape their lives, so they must live them until the end. It was this hopelessness that made Mr. Panero close both plays with the suicide of the being whose existence was thus blighted. This was another concession, surely, to the fashion which demands that play shall come to some definite conclusion. Would it not have been even more effective to leave Dunstan and Paula face to face with the necessity of living on somehow? Suicide ought only to be permitted in fiction to characters which we may justly regard as heroic. It ought not to be allowed to dignify weak characters which have no heroic elements about them. It is in no sense an expiation. It is merely a way of escape, and a way which very few of the Paulas and Dunstans take, however much they may talk about it. The total number of people who kill themselves is quite small, and of this total number there is but a small percentage who are driven to commit suicide by any real trouble or misfortune. I quite admit that neither the average reader of books nor the average spectator at plays likes to be left with a problem unsolved. Either there must be a happy ending, which need not trouble the mind with speculation, or the knot must be cut by death. This is not the way of life at all, and it is a pity that the unthinking should be encouraged to suppose that it is. The make of the second Mrs. Tanqueray is more finished, and therefore more convincing in detail than that of the profligate, or perhaps I should say than of the earlier part of the profligate. Compare the openings. Hugh Murray's conversation with Lord Dangers scarcely bears upon it the stamp of nature. Aubrey's dinner party is a perfect piece of exposition. The whole situation is unfolded simply, easily, naturally, not a word too little or too much. We are interested at once, and our attention is never allowed to wander for a moment from the problem in hand. 
the author's purpose is effected without any straining of probability, without even making the spectator or the reader conscious of the artifice that is used. There are coincidences in either piece, but they need not trouble us. It might be better if they were less long-armed, but coincidence is always permissible on the stage, so it be not merely episodic. Here it matters little by what means Janet and Ardale are brought into the lives of Leslie and of Aline. The great matter is to press home the author's conclusions, and this demands their presence in the plot. They are brought in to serve the definite end of the whole play. The coincidences, in themselves, are of no interest at all. On the other hand, the characters are all drawn so as to interest us for their own sake, as well as in their general bearing upon the leading motive. Aline is typically of a certain kind of girlhood particularly English. Her shrinking from Paula and her swift accusation of herself at the end of having helped to kill her stepmother are equally true to this type. So is the illogical but very natural feeling which prompts her to forgive Ardale for having been a bit wild at one time because of what he has done since in India. Kaylee Drummel is delightful, as shrewd, as kind-hearted, and as amusing a little man as ever wasted his time in hanging about London clubs half the year and country houses the next. Sir George and Lady Oride, nay, Miss Mabel Hervey, type of a class which is immortal, may seem a trifle overdrawn, but could be amply justified by human documentation. The dialogue all through is admirable, witty when the occasion permits. One thinks at once of Cayley's description of the first Mrs. Tanqueray, indeed of Cayley's talk throughout the play, at a high level of seriousness and power in the long closing scenes. Indeed the piece, regarded as a whole, strikes one as being finer and more worthy of respect every time one sees or reads it afresh. The French writer, Monsieur Charles Hastings, was not going beyond the generally accepted opinion when he wrote of it. C'est de la vie des meilleurs critiques, l'œuvre la plus remarquable de l'histoire du théâtre anglais pendant la deuxième partie du XIXe siècle. While I subscribe readily to this opinion, I am inclined, as a matter of personal preference, to regard the benefit of the doubt as the play of Mr. Panero's which, on the whole, has given me the most pleasure. It had nothing like the success of the second Mrs. Tanqueray. A great many people who heartily admire Mr. Pinero's work look blankly at you when you mention it, and admit that they have never seen this excellent piece. I think its failure to hit the popular taste must be set down to the fact that its theme is not direct and single like that of the earlier work, but complicated and of a criss-cross texture, that sympathy is drawn different ways and the spectator compelled to consider the nature of the situation instead of being allowed to start from a point at which everything can be taken for granted. Furthermore, there is nothing heroic about any of the characters. Fraser of Lochleen is a dull fellow who has married the wrong woman. Theo is a poor, tawdry, flighty little person who has accepted the wrong man. Jack Allingham and his wife are an equally ill-assorted pair. Her jealousy makes his existence with her unendurable, because he has not strength of mind enough to endure and to convince her by degrees that her state of mind is absurd nor has he sufficient consideration for his old friend Theo to prevent him from compromising her reputation by stupid thoughtlessness. Sir Fletcher Portwood is a windbag, Claude Emptage a fribble, Justine a little better than a minx, and Mrs. Emptage a fit mother for such children. Remains Mrs. Cloyes, the bishop's wife. Well, in Mrs. Cloyes there is an element which does approach the heroic, but it stops short at the approach. It may be heroic to flout the prejudices of the world, but it can never be heroic, however judicious and proper it may be, to shape one's conduct with the view of conciliating the world. 
And that, after all, is what Mrs. Cloyes thinks about principally when she plays the Dea e Machina and offers to rehabilitate Theo in society's esteem by taking her niece under her wing. What does she say herself? Not that it is a censorious, evil-thinking world, and that no heed need be paid to what scandalmongers and worldlings may say. Oh, no, that would not be at all in keeping with Mrs. Cloyes' character. It is of the effect of her actions upon the world that she is thinking all the time. Both in London and in St. Alford's, Theophilia will be my close companion. In our little London gaieties she will figure prominently. At certain formal gatherings she will share the responsibility of the hostess. If any paragraph concerning our doings should creep into the newspaper, it will concern the Bishop of St. Alford's, Mrs. Cloyes, and Mrs. Fraser of Joaquin. Oh, I don't think there will be many to wag evil tongues against Mrs. Fraser a few months hence. A kindly speech, if you will, and a speech wise from the world's point of view, but not heroic. End of section 8. Recording by Todd. With French Quotes by Linda Fytak.